Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History. I am your host, Derek Litvak. Today, we'll be speaking to Dr. Jonathan Gnapp, author of The Second Creation, Fixing the American Constitution and the Founding Era, published by Harvard University Press in 2018. Dr. Gnapp is Assistant Professor of History at Stanford University. The Second Creation takes another look at the creation of the Constitution, exploring how Americans during the Founding Era understood the document. More specifically, Dr. Gnapp investigates the changing ideas of what the Constitution was and how it was should be interpreted. The second creation is the winner of the 2017 Thomas J. Wilson Memorial Prize from Harvard University Press and a finalist for the 2019 Frederick Jackson Turner Award from the Organization of American Historians. Dr. Gnapp, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Yes. Well, glad you could be here. So to begin with, could you tell our listeners what brought you to this topic and what made you interested in this? Sure. Um, So I had long been interested in the political and intellectual history of revolutionary America, the founding period. Uh, But like so many scholars, I was primarily interested in what happened before and leading up to uh, the constitutional convention. A lot of what I studied focused on the debates that led Americans to independence and then thereafter uh, led them to set up their own systems of government stories that usually culminate uh, with the writing of the federal constitution. Um, And then one day I sort of realized that I knew significantly less about constitutional debates in the 1790s, that is immediately after the Constitution was ratified. And when I started to explore them, not only uh, did I find them so interesting because they had received relatively limited attention by comparison to the, the very famous debates that take place in the Constitutional Convention and during ratification, the period that follows when Americans are deciding whether to accept the proposed Constitution or not. Not only were they relatively less, less studied, but they also really really surprised me um, because they usually began over matters that were very small, but quickly ballooned into large fundamental questions about what it even meant to interpret or apply the Constitution. And I started to realize that the 1790s were perhaps different than I and others had recognized precisely because Americans didn't really have a playbook for using the Constitution at this early debate, at this early date. So looking at these debates um, anew seemed like a good way to, 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 to sort of rethink what it meant for the Constitution to be created. So I started thinking this period was totally different than I had ever thought it was. So for viewers who are listeners, I should say, who are less familiar with the Constitution's creation, how has it typically been talked about by scholars? Yeah, I mean, this is a very important question because it's really the starting point of my book, and I alluded to it a bit in my previous answer. So, obviously, 
the origins of the United States Constitution is 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 something that has been studied uh, in great depth uh, for a whole variety of reasons. But if you look at most famous foundational, influential accounts of that period and that story, it tends to focus on the years 1787 and 1788 when the Constitution was written and ratified. If you picked up a book that was about the making of the United States Constitution, the creation of the United States Constitution, however it was referred to, it would primarily focus on the Constitutional Convention that gathered in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia and actually wrote the Constitution that 232 years ago, uh, 232 years later, is still our fundamental law. And then some of those books would also carry it forward into ratification, into the period when Americans considered whether to accept the Constitution or not. But most of them would stop there. Most of them would say that 1788 really signals this categorical break in American constitutional history. The story up to that point is the story of creating. The story after that is the smaller story of merely interpreting or implementing or fleshing out. Um, the Constitution didn't exist until 1787, 1788, but then thereafter, it did exist. It, it had been created. Now a very different kind of activity was taking place. That's usually how uh, the story has been um, presented. What I'm trying to suggest in this book is, is not that 1787 and 88 are unimportant. They're obviously immensely important. But that the period that followed counterintuitively did every bit as much to create the Constitution, and I mean that in a pretty literal sense, uh, as what happened in those more famous years. So when we tell this story and only focus on 1787, 1788, we actually miss a lot of the story. Um, as I try to argue in the book, a lot of what Americans today, be the people familiar with the Constitution or less familiar, a lot of the things that they think define what the Constitution is, were not there in any obvious sense in 1787 or 1788. It, it took the decade thereafter um, for those ways of imagining what the Constitution was and what kind of characteristics it had uh, to really solidify. Yeah. So, And you talk about the Bill of Rights, which we can talk about later, which is probably something that many people who are vaguely familiar with the Constitution and how it was created can kind of think about when we talk about the fact that the Constitution kind of was continue, continually being formed throughout the 1790s. You know, the Bill of Rights had to be made. But you look at other things, other debates that are happening during the 1790s. So kind of walk us through this. So what's the first kind of major debate that the newly elected uh, representatives in Congress start, you know, having with each other that really brings these constitutional questions to the forefront? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I, the, the first debate I I focus on in depth um, in Congress, as you mentioned, I, I mean, much of the book, I look at Congress because they're really kind of the principal mover and shaker at this time for a lot of different reasons, is such a fascinating debate to me because it was wholly unexpected. It helps show the deeper principle that I think is in play beginning in 1789, that the Constitution's fundamental 
identity and characteristics is deeply uncertain, which destabilizes the capacity for people to make a lot of other kinds of claims. So this debate that breaks out in May of 1789, the first federal Congress has just arrived um, in New York City. They've just opened business. They have more to do than any Congress in American history, and they quickly get bogged down for a long period of time in a very unexpected debate. So there's lots they need to do. Among the most important things they, they have to do is create the new federal government, particularly the new executive branch. Article 2 of the Constitution says, of course, that there will be a president who's vested with executive power, and it intimates that there will be different types of executive departments, or what we would now today call sort of the different cabinets of the executive branch. But it doesn't specify what those are, so Congress has to create those by law. And they immediately get to work writing these bills to create a Department of Foreign Affairs, a Department of the Treasury, and a Department of War. And in the first bill they write, the Department of Foreign Affairs, they stipulate that they're at the head of that department will be a Secretary of Foreign Affairs. We now call this person the Secretary of State. And James Madison, who's really uh, the kind of the key figure in uh, the early United States Congress, uh, puts in language that says that this secretary will be appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate, which is exactly what the Constitution says, but then adds that this secretary will be removable by the president, by the president alone. And Madison doesn't think there's anything particularly controversial about this. But then William Lawton Smith, who's a congressman from South Carolina, objects and says, on what grounds does Congress or James Madison have a right to specify that the president will be, that this secretary of foreign affairs will be removable by the president? The Constitution doesn't say anything about how executive officers are supposed to be removed. So William Lawton Smith argues, since the Constitution is silent on this question, they aren't allowed to fill the silence. They aren't allowed to add something that isn't there. All it says about removal is that um, executive officers can be removed, can be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors. Other than that, they can't be removed at all. Lots of people in Congress think this is pretty baffling. How can you have a, a government where executive officers, people who work under the president, don't serve at his pleasure? He, can't, he or she can't remove them. They serve indefinitely until they commit high crimes or misdemeanors or choose to resign. But William Lawton Smith says, no, we, we have no authority to assign this power. So this can seem like a very small technical matter, trying to just figure out how an executive officer can or cannot be removed. But the reason I argue that this becomes such a fundamental debate and is so illustrative more generally is because congressmen were forced to debate right off the bat something far, far more fundamental than whether you could remove an executive officer. They had to debate what they were supposed to do in the face of constitutional silence. When the Constitution didn't specify something, what happened next? And it was pretty clear from the ensuing debate that people had lots of different ideas about what happened next, and generally speaking, no real idea of what absolutely was the right answer. They had to fight it about it. They had to have a deep contentious debate that was really about the Constitution's relationship to sitting political actors and more generally what one was supposed to do in interpreting the Constitution. So it turns into this much bigger debate 
that lasts well over a month um, and leads them to probe some pretty fundamental questions. And this debate isn't exactly new to the Constitution, as you point out. You know, these are the kind of arguments that people are having about the Constitution while they are debating whether or not to ratify it. And you point out in the book that both sides start picking up arguments that they would have previously been using about the ratification of the Constitution. So the kind of proto-federalist party was using arguments that the federalist faction was using, and then the kind of proto-democratic-republican party was using the the arguments that the anti-federalists were using. So what are they kind of doing with these arguments and trying to say about the Constitution? Sure, yeah. So the the Constitution goes public in the fall of 1787, and this contentious period known as ratification consumes the next nine-plus months. And during that time, those who are foreign against the Constitution create the first real constitutional scripts, if you will, ways for thinking about what the Constitution is and what one can do with it. And among the things the Anti-Federalists do is they focus, I mean, they have many complaints about what makes the Constitution terrible, about why the Constitution should not be ratified. But in addition to talking about what the Constitution says, they also spend a lot of time complaining about how it is written, particularly that it's written in their eyes in this particularly vague and ambiguous way, that almost all the clauses and all the clauses that are important are sufficiently open-ended that those in power will be able to use them to effectively claim even more power um, than they otherwise have a right to. Federalists during ratification really push back against this and claim that anti-federalists were deeply mistaken, above all because they fundamentally misunderstood the nature of human language itself and its capacity to write anything like a constitution in a non-ambiguous way. So you get people like James Madison during the ratification debates actually saying that human beings are imperfect, human language is imperfect, there's nothing wrong with a constitution that is more or less indeterminate. That is effectively the only kind of constitution you have. Madison famously says in no matter how hard you try to write something in a determinate way, it's only when concrete um, when concrete cases arise that people will actually be able to adjudicate what different parts of the Constitution really mean. So you fast forward to the first Congress, and a lot of these early debates they had over whether the Constitution was vague and indeterminate, whether or not that was a good or bad thing, are revived uh, in this debate over the removal of executive officers and debates that follow. You find people making similar kinds of arguments to those that James Madison had made, saying, of course, the Constitution doesn't specify how executive officers are removed. No Constitution could possibly imagine all future contingencies. What the Constitution is really doing, and this is a real strength of it, is it is empowering contemporary political actors to build upon it, complete it, finish it. These are the ways in which they refer to it. But others like William Lawton Smith and Elbridge Gerry and those who were really concerned about filling the Constitution's silences double down on this earlier anti-federalist argument 
and increasingly emphasize that the Constitution is a text. It is fundamentally a bundle of words, and that will only ever work if they stick closely to those words and those words alone. Um, so you get these kind of competing visions about whether or not the Constitution is a text and whether or not that's the right way to think about it. Um, and a lot of what uh, begins in ratification then carries over into the first Congresses as they're debating not just how to interpret the Constitution, but even how to fundamentally imagine it, which then sets up how one interprets it. And so when debating how to interpret and imagine you know, this written document, you speak about how there's this process that begins in this in this first Congress of fixing the Constitution mm. and fixing has, you know, this sort of multiple meanings um, in the way that you are observing uh, these political actors using using it. So what does fixing the Constitution mean and how does that process begin? Yeah, uh, very important question, uh, of course, um, and it's why it's in the, the subtitle of the book. So fixing, uh, to fix something can mean at least two, can carry at least two very different meanings. Um, to fix something can on the one hand mean to repair something or to improve it, effectively to change it for the better. That's a much more dynamic understanding of fixity, of things changing. The other meaning of fixity, to fix something means to cement it in place so it cannot move, so it can't change. And that's a much more static understanding of what it means for something to be fixed or what it means to fix something. And what I try to suggest in the book is that the very concept of constitutional fixity is rather unsettled at the time the Constitution is written and ratified. People talk a lot about constitutions being fixed, but often that is not in any way um, incompatible with the idea of constitutions changing over time. What happens at first in Congress, I think, is that a lot of the members of the first um, political generation recognize that the Constitution is relatively indeterminate, inchoate, underspecified. So what this means is that fixing the Constitution is about fleshing it out in practice, putting it in motion, giving it operative meaning to confront new experiences and circumstances than it previously had. But over the process of doing that and thinking that that is what they were doing, eventually later in the 1790s, they end up arriving at a different understanding of fixity that imagines the Constitution as much more fixed in place as being something that is less easily changed, that is less about the Constitution of 1787 and the Constitution of the present working in concert, but very much about seeing those things um, as different and restoring the, the original Constitution of 1787 as the fixed Constitution. 
so yeah, we you began with you know this debate over the executive office and you know whether or not you know the the secretary can be removed or not and you know modern people contemporary people might look at that and be like well of course like that's just there (laughs) um so how could you possibly not remove someone but as you point out and as people pointed out then the constitution says nothing about it and so they begin this process of fixing it like you say and so to go on to something that people are probably a little bit more familiar with, um, the Bill of Rights. How does this kind of fit into your argument and what you see going on with fixing the Constitution? Yeah. So in, in some ways, this is my this is arguably my favorite episode from the period, uh, in part because I think it it does such a good job of illustrating um the uncertainty of the early constitution, but also uh, precisely what makes the post-ratification period so important. Because we from the present tend to look back and see the constitution that we're familiar with there at the very beginning. And the Bill of Rights episode in the summer of 1789, when members of Congress add amendments to the constitution, shows very clearly that that is not um, the case. So If you asked the average American what's in the Constitution, you alluded to this earlier, uh, almost all of their answers would come from the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, what we now call the Bill of Rights. They would probably talk about the freedom of speech or the freedom of religion or maybe the right to keep and bear arms or prohibitions against cruel and unusual punishments. In many ways, these are the most famous parts of the Constitution. They were not there in 1787. But as important as those provisions are today, the first debate that congressmen had in August of 1789 was not over what to add to the Constitution, but over how to add it. How, in a literal sense, was the Constitution to be amended? And this is a fascinating debate to me, and not many people know about it. And what they effectively disagreed over was whether, as James Madison suggested, amendments should be interwoven or incorporated directly into the Constitution. That is, you would literally add new text to different parts of the Constitution. Or, as Roger Sherman, who was a congressman from Connecticut, argued, if amendments should be added as supplement or as an appendix, that is, you leave the original Constitution as it is and you add a amendments at the end in kind of a running list. This was really important because of the arguments that they made over it, the reasons why each side thought their method of amending the Constitution was so important. Madison and those who supported him, who thought they needed to be incorporated into the Constitution, were adamant that this was the only way to ensure that you had one single uniform Constitution, that it would create confusion and chaos. If you had seven articles over here written in 1787, and then amendments over here written in 1789, maybe more amendments here written in 1796, you would have two, three, four, maybe five constitutions. No one would be able to understand how they related. Having a constitution was about having one single holistic thing. But those on the other side thought that amendments were basically a different kind of substance or material. That's how they referred to it, to the original constitution and had to be added separately 
so that the original constitution was not somehow inadvertently changed. And I think this becomes the key point. Madison and his supporters see no issue with that. I mean, the whole point is that the constitution is supposed to be this thing that sort of changes intergenerationally, and there should be no concern that you add a new amendment into a first into a certain part of the constitution. But other other congressmen are really concerned about this. They think this will un, this will fundamentally undermine the original constitution and they start talking about how it needs to be left as it is, how it needs to remain lodged in the archives, a, a, a rather important phrase they use. And of course, ultimately, Roger Sherman and his side win this debate. We, we amend the Constitution by adding amendments at the end. But why this is so important is because Sherman and his allies prevailed, it meant that moving forward, it was going to be much easier to imagine the Constitution as an archival object, as something that was circumscribed in time, rather than just reading one Constitution and not immediately knowing based on where it was located in the text when things were added, now readers would know exactly when things were added. The original constitution would be there unchanged, fixed in 1787. Then you'd have a set of amendments that followed at a later moment in time, and then other amendments that would follow after that. Those who participated in the debate began talking about the constitution in more avowedly temporal and archival terms. And I think a big reason why was because of this debate. A perfect example being, you referred to it as the Bill of Rights. All Americans refer to these amendments as the Bill of Rights. It took well over a century for anybody to habitually call the first 10 amendments a Bill of Rights. Had they been incorporated or interwoven in the original Constitution, had they not been an appendix that was set off visually and physically, it would have been impossible to ever call these amendments a Bill of Rights. So arguably the most famous thing about the Constitution of all time uh, was a result of this choice that was made because Roger Sherman beat James Madison in this really important debate. So that gives a perfect sense of how differently the Constitution could have functioned, could have been imagined, uh, had that debate turned out differently. Yeah, I mean, it's it's honestly something that is very fascinating to me at at the very least, and especially given given what today is, which it's um June twenty seventh, twenty nineteen. In case anyone in the future is is curious, um, and today we had a few Supreme Court rulings, um, one of which dealt very uh, intimately with the Bill of Rights, and so one wonders what you know it would have looked like had these amendments been simply incorporated into the Constitution itself. Yeah, you think of a world in which the phrase, the First Amendment, would mean nothing. The, the ideas in the First Amendment would, would have been in the Constitution, in a very different part of the Constitution. They would have been in Article 1, Section 9, which is the section of the Constitution that puts prohibitions on what Congress can or cannot do. But think about that, that a world in which we never use the phrase First Amendment, there's no First Amendment doctrine, we don't necessarily see that as a standalone thing, um, that, that's, that's quite possibly a very different kind of constitutional world. Uh, this is not just style, this is not just form versus function. I think the two were intimately related 
um, at this early date. And this debate helps show why. Yeah, exactly. Um, and going forward and looking at other debates, I mean, arguably, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments that we see in the Constitution are probably something that many people are least familiar familiar with. But, you know, most people are probably not familiar with the executive debate. And a lot of people are probably not familiar with the national bank debate. So what mm. is that? People might be more familiar thanks to Hamilton, but you are certainly uh, you are certainly right. Um like the uh, debate over removing executive officers, this isn't necessarily a debate that immediately springs to mind. So Alexander Hamilton, uh, as the first secretary of the treasury, has this ambitious plan for remaking uh, not just United States finances, but the economy more generally. Um, he's he's interested in jumpstarting the economy, and he has some far-reaching proposals to do so, one of which is calls upon Congress to charter a national bank, which he thinks will help stimulate the economy and more efficiently distribute capital. A number of people are very wary about the idea of a national bank because they think it will disproportionately favor the more commercial and industrialized North at the expense of the more agricultural South. So powerful political leaders like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson um, from Virginia were very wary of what Hamilton's policies will do, how they will give more power to the North and take it away from the South, um, are eager to combat it. James Madison has a problem, though. Uh, Hamilton proposes that Congress charter this bank in December of 1790. They get to work pretty quickly drafting a bill. And Madison knows that Hamilton has the votes and has them pretty decisively in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. So it seems pretty futile to combat the bank on policy grounds on the basis that it wouldn't be good for the nation. So at the 11th hour, so this also reveals something about how the Constitution really develops in these early years. It's intimately um, entangled with partisan politics and the developing world of partisan politics at this time. At the 11th hour, knowing that he can't stop the bank politically, Madison changes course and instead suggests on the floor of the House of Representatives that the bank is unconstitutional. So... Whether it's a good idea or not, it doesn't matter. Congress lacks the authority to charter a national bank, so they can't proceed um, in doing so. So this precipitates what's known as the bank debate, this very important debate in Congress over whether the Constitution does or does not allow the national government to charter a national bank. And similar to the other debates I spoke, I, I've spoken about, but especially the debate over uh, the removal of executive officers, part of what makes it so important um, is that it's not just about the bank or even about the specific parts of the Constitution, different um, clauses that seem to give Congress a wider latitude of authority. It's about more broadly um, what the Constitution is and what it allows, and the different ways of reading it that follow from that. Um, I argue that it really kind of turns on this question of what the Constitution necessitated. 
Um, and I partly draw attention to that because the so-called necessary and proper clause, which comes at the end of Article 1, Section 8, which specifies the various powers that Congress is assigned. At the end of it, it says Congress also has the power to make all laws necessary and proper to carry out these powers that have been enumerated. Those who are against the bank fixate on the necessary and proper clause and say that the necessary and proper clause merely offers the means to carry out ends that have been specified in the Constitution. It doesn't create new ends in its own right. A national bank is not one of the things Congress is allowed to do, so the necessary and proper clause doesn't give it this additional power. But those who support the bank, who think the bank is constitutional, is important, paint a very different picture of what the Constitution necessitates. They, they, they talk about how the Constitution, for a whole variety of reasons, is effectively unfinished and underdetermined. And there's no reason to think that it wouldn't have been. So in moments like this, where it hasn't anticipated all of the powers that the government might need to address the essential objects of national governance, what it really necessitates is that members of Congress will be able to use their discretion creatively to effectively fill in the areas where the Constitution um, has not been uh, adequately extended to cover. This then leads people on the other side, once again, James Madison leading the charge, to really stress building upon what anti-federalists had said, building then even further on what opponents of executive removal had said, that the Constitution is a kind of sacred scripture. Its words parcel the boundaries of national political power. And because those words don't include anything in them that allows for the chartering of a national bank, it is effectively sacrilegious to violate this compact, this charter, these words, and to do so. And we see in this debate a real sharpening of these different ways of thinking about the Constitution. One that sees it in non-textual terms as fairly unfinished and indeterminate, and those who are really, really eager to fix in people's mind this way of seeing the Constitution as a kind of scripture, as a kind of text that gives out fundamental binding and comprehensive orders. So once again, the bank debate is helping to really develop these rival ways of thinking about the Constitution and how one can use it. Yeah, and and I I almost forgot about Hamilton for a minute there. I don't know how I did that. Um, hopefully, more people are familiar with the bank debate um, after Hamilton. Um, I believe that. But uh, in terms of thinking about the last debate, that major debate that you talk about in this book, that's looking at the Constitution and you know, no pun intended, the room where it happened. Sure. Um, the J Treaty debate. How does this kind of you know solidify our kind of you know contemporary understanding of the Constitution? How does the J 
treaty debate, um, kind of put forward all of these different ideas of fixing the Constitution and kind of just solidify that so that we have this idea of the Constitution um, that kind of persists to this day that was kind of created, as your book so aptly says, in the second creation. Well, uh, thank you. Um, so the J Treaty, as, as you say so well, really is where it all comes together in, in my mind, those specific uh, developments you were referring to. So the J Treaty is as controversial a, an event as there is in the 1790s. Long story short, uh, war is raging in Europe thanks to the French Revolution. Uh, different factions in the United States have different attitudes on whether or not the United States ought to be involved in this conflict. Uh, President George Washington is pretty eager to keep the United States out of war, so he declares neutrality. Problem is that Britain, who is at war with France, is um, basically treats anybody who is not formally allied with them or is doing business with the enemy as an enemy of war. So they begin seizing American ships. Americans say, we're going to trade with France and Britain and everybody else. Uh, Britain says, you can't trade with our enemy. If you do that, we'll seize your ships. So Britain is seizing American ships on the Atlantic Ocean in the Caribbean. It's causing problems. So Washington dispatches John Jay, who's the chief justice of the Supreme Court, to negotiate a treaty with Britain that will solve not just these problems born of the French Revolutionary Wars, but all problems dating back to the war for American independence. Jay returns with the treaty. And at this point, the nation has, has very much divided into rival political parties. There had already been fissures between Hamilton and the Washington administration and Washington and Jefferson, but those are now pretty clearly demarcated um, and recognized by the participants themselves. Federalists, those who support the Washington administration are on one side, and uh, Republicans or Democratic Republicans, those led by Jefferson and Madison, are on the other side. And Republicans um, think that any treaty that is favorable to the British is deeply offensive for a number of reasons, uh, not least because the, in their understanding of the world order, the United States should view Britain as its mortal enemy. This in their eyes is what the American Revolution was over after all. Um, these nations shouldn't be friends. The United States should be friends with nations like France who are trying to establish their own republic. So John Jay returns with the treaty. And word of its contents leak. And in the eyes of Republicans, it's much too favorable to Britain. So the nation explodes in protest. It's pretty hard to overstate how controversial this is. For weeks and weeks, up and down the entire coast of the United States, there are town meetings, there are protests. John Jay is burned in effigy on a regular basis. Petitions flood onto George Washington's desk, asking him to reject the treaty. But after the Senate, which is controlled by the Federalists, approves the treaty, it requires a two-thirds vote. They have exactly the number of votes necessary to pass it on a party line. It goes to George Washington, and he signs the treaty. That presumably should be the end of the matter, because the Constitution says that treaties are made by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. But at the same time, such a huge percentage of the American political community is furious about the treaty, despises the treaty, 
views the treaty not just as a commercial agreement between nations, but as really a complete betrayal of the American Revolution. So what this means is when the House of Representatives, who according to the Constitution, um, seemingly has no role to play in treaty making, receives the treaty for implementation, because it's a commercial treaty, the House of Representatives has to pass the commercial legislation that appropriates the funds to carry it into effect. A lot of Republicans in the House of Representatives, and they command a significant majority, think that they need to take a stand against the treaty. And they partly think this because their constituencies have been so agitated. I mean, think in recent years in contemporary United States about town hall meetings and protests in the streets and how this has impacted how members of Congress um, feel towards certain issues. Something very similar, hap- similar happened over the Jay Treaty in the 1790s. So what Republicans do is they formally request that George Washington hand over, again, this seems very timely, they ask the executive branch to hand over pertinent records um, pertaining to the negotiation of the Jay Treaty. They say they want to look at those records. And what this precipitates, this is all a long way of setting up the debate that comes to consume the House of Representatives, which is effectively over whether or not the House of Representatives has any role to play in treaty making or not which is then a bigger question about continuing on the themes that I've talked about in the earlier debates about whether or not the Constitution is more than meets the eye. Federalists say, just read the Constitution. It says treaties are made by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. End of the matter. Anybody can figure that out. Republicans say, no, you have to, you're just looking at it on the surface. You have to look beneath the surface in a more complex way. It also says that Congress has legislative power and that the House of Representatives controls money bills. If the president and Senate can just agree to treaties that make the House of Representatives pass appropriations bills, then the House of Representatives doesn't have legislative power after all. Turns out the Constitution has these tensions in it that need to be worked out. And the two sides go back and forth, back and forth. What's the right way to read the Constitution? Is the Constitution more than meets the eye? Is it more than its words? Does the history um, behind the making of the Constitution matter? And what I think is most striking in the Jay Treaty debate, and it's why I end with it, is that it's the culmination of this novel way of adjudicating constitutional debates that had really originated um, in any pronounced form in the bank debate, which, which was something I didn't mention but was Madison's, one of his last-ditch efforts to try to fight the bank, is he didn't just look at the Constitution itself. He looked at the history of the Constitution's creation. Now, this wasn't that long ago at this time, but in 1791, when they're having the bank debate, what he does is he pulls out the record from the ratification debates in 1787 and 1788 and tries to show that those who ratified the Constitution didn't think that they were giving Congress a power to charter a national bank. So, and Madison loses that debate, of course. Um, the national bank is created. But what he's able to succeed at doing is he's able to get people to play that game with him, to dive into the past, to look at the archive of the Constitution, if you will, and to effectively breathe life into the idea that this archive, that this history can somehow determine the Constitution's meaning in the present. We see that on steroids in the Jay Treaty debate. Both sides, both Federalists and Republicans, despite disagreeing on everything, on the merits of the treaty, 
on politics, on whether the Washington administration is doing a good job, whether they should be friendly to Britain or France. They disagree on everything. What they come to agree on, converge on, is a willingness to look at the history of the Constitution's creation in a deep, and I mean deep, way to try to resolve this question of whether the House of Representatives has a role in treaty making. So the House of Representatives, it's rather strange reading through these debates, for days on end, turns into effectively what we might call his historical show and tell. Different members of Congress reading long speeches from the ratification debates verbatim. I mean, these, these must have taken hours to fully read out, entering them into the record suggesting that what had been said in 1787 or 1788 could resolve this debate that was raging in the spring of 1796. So what this shows, I think, is really the culmination of circumscribing the Constitution in space and time, and Americans coming to see it as something that is distinctly fixed in history if you will. It doesn't mean that thereafter Americans agree on constitutional interpretation or constitutional um, or fundamental uh, issues pertaining to the Constitution. As we know, right up to the present day, right up to the Supreme Court cases you mentioned, Americans have always disagreed on those questions. But what has changed, what has developed in 1796, is a fundamentally new way of having that debate. And that creates a script that I don't think we've ever given up on, which creates a fundamental choice that structures constitutional argument. Either we respect the fixed original constitution located in the archives in 1787 and 1788, or we reject that constitution and treat it as a living, growing, dynamic thing but we can no longer treat them as the same at once. Either the Constitution is fixed in this new historical way, or it isn't. And that debate, I try to suggest, was by no means hardwired into the Constitution initially, was not inevitable, was not an obvious way that Americans had to come to argue over it. But it is the way they eventually argue over it in the 1790s, and it is still the way, in many ways, we argue about it today. Yeah, which is what I I guess it kind of brings us to the elephant in the room, which is to say that even though you don't speak about it explicitly very often in the book, your book is really a kind of history um, about how originalism as an idea that we have today can even exist um, in that, you know, people when they created the Constitution didn't think about it in this way of kind of a set document. But as time goes on, as these debates kind of rage and as partisan politics, you know, really ramps up, the Constitution takes this kind of form. And so I guess to end it in terms of speaking about, you know, the ways that we remember the Constitution and everything, and you've speak and you've um, mentioned him uh, pretty much every time with all these debates, because he's always there. But James Madison, what is the kind of how does he evolve from, you know, being someone who's kind of at the forefront of calling for the 
uh, amending of the Articles of Confederation, the form of government before the Constitution, to what he is in the Jay Treaty and the bank debates. Um, how does he get there? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and to your to your earlier point, I think that's that's absolutely right about um, what my book is trying to do. That a lot of dominant ways of understanding the Constitution today that are treated as kind of inexorable or inevitable um, developments under our constitution. I'm trying to show how contingent debates in the 1790s were necessary to create them. You mentioned originalism, but I think we can also say that about originalism's antagonist, uh, living constitutionalism. Um, And James Madison's own development helps illustrate precisely why. So you're you're certainly right to um, suggest that I emphasize him uh, throughout, w- one of the reasons being, as as you said so well, he's always there. Um, he is he is the central figure um, in these particular debates throughout this period. He's sort of the the long running constant. But even if even if he hadn't been there, he's his own. The evolution of his thinking is such a perfect way, I think, of illustrating the broader um, constitutional development that I'm trying to sketch throughout the book. Because if we just consider James Madison from the beginning of the story to the end, and how his own way of imagining the Constitution develops, it's pretty stark and dramatic, I I would argue. Um, So in the 1780s, when he's thinking about the problems that ail the American Confederacy, and he's putting together his thoughts on the need for fundamental constitutional reform. One thing he arrives at time and time again is the idea that constitutions are really more something you build, not something you write. The constitutions are about constructing systems of coordinate powers that can be brought to equilibrium. It's not about specifying a precise legal code that says this part of the government can do this, this part can do that, these rights are reserved to the people. Madison has earlier referred to the Constitution as constitutional text as parchment barriers, that to reduce the Constitution to its text, to see it as text, um, is just a flawed way of understanding what constitutions are and what constitutionalism is about. But then in the bank debate, he begins really emphasizing the idea that the Constitution is written and begins decrying those who want to charter the bank as not respecting the words of the Constitution. And he begins offering a much more text-centric conception of the Constitution. And this culminates in an essay that he writes in which he calls uh, the Constitution or written constitutions, political scripture. So this is a pretty dramatic change. Parchment barriers to political scripture, where we see, I think, in just in that just that juxtaposition, um, how his imagination is changing. Um, and at the same time, he's not just talking at, to a great extent about the text of the Constitution. He's also talking about the history of the Constitution's creation as a way to better understand and resolve the indeterminacies in the text. So before, in the ratification debates, he had said, of course, the Constitution's indeterminate. Anything written in human language is indeterminate. All that means is that contemporary 
political actors will help resolve its indeterminacies. Now he's making a very different argument about how to resolve those indeterminacies. He's now talking about going back to the past, figuring out what the original framers and ratifiers thought and using that to resolve indeterminacies. This carries through the Jay Treaty debate. And then later in life, after he leaves the White House in 1817, he dies in 1836, the sort of last 20 years of his life. He writes a ton, mostly in correspondence, but also in some other forms. And he writes at length about the Constitution, in part because um, he's witnessing um, the development of constitutional debates and pretty, pretty intense ones over the expansion of slavery, the question of whether states can nullify federal laws. These are, these are raging in the 1820s and 1830s, and he's asked to weigh in on them. And the Madison we find in these later years is really quite striking because it shows a Madison who has really um, moved beyond the one who went to the Philadelphia Convention with a very different idea of constitutionalism in mind. Here he's talking at great length about the Constitution being defined by its language and how the only way to properly ensure that that language is respected is to return to what the framers who had written and ratified that language thought it meant and to enforce that meaning. So here we have Madison talking about the importance of constitutional text and talking about the need to appeal to the archive of the Constitution's creation to resolve it. Um, in the process, uh, disparaging the idea of the indeterminate, unfinished Constitution that in 1787 and 88 and 89, um, he had not just defended, but in many ways had championed. So this very different way of seeing the Constitution, its imperatives, its possibilities, its logic, Madison perfectly encapsulates how that transformation has taken place. Yeah, if, you know, and for people who are familiar with Madison at all, even just from, you know, high school and everything, you know, we're used to referring to Madison in terms of the Constitution as kind of the father of the Constitution, um, as if, you know, even that kind of uh, language kind of has the idea that the constitution is fixed, you know, once yeah. it, once he gives birth to it. But if anything, you know, Madison is, you know, kind of being rebirthed over time, um, yes. as he comes to different conclusions about the constitution. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, James Madison is first called the father of the constitution in 18. 29 and understanding in sort of a deeper sense how and why he comes to be referred to that way i think also in miniature captures what my book more broadly is about which is trying to understand how the constitution with which we are familiar today the one that we intuitively see how that ever emerged in the first place that there is a difference between the constitution that was made in 1787 and the specific kind of constitution that we so intuitively create in our minds. The same thing is true of James Madison, that the story about how he becomes the father of the constitution um, is extremely important, but perhaps for reasons uh, that we're not inclined to see. Uh, it's really important to understand how he or anybody else from his generation 
came to be viewed in those terms because it requires, in a certain sense, seeing the Constitution as a distinctly historical artifact, as something made in a particular moment in time. Only if you see it in those terms are you then inclined to refer to those who lived at that time in a particular way. Yeah, very interesting. Well, to finish this off, um, could you give us an idea of um, what we can expect from you in the future? What's your future projects, if any? Because um, I'm sure people are going to go out and buy this book. <laughs> um, once again, it's called The Second Creation, Fixing the American Constitution and the Founding Air. So what can we expect from you in the future? Well, thank you for uh, for that plug, um, and hopefully people do buy it and enjoy it. So there there are a number of things that I'd like to um, I'd like to tackle in the future. One of them takes me in a similar direction; the other in a in a slightly different one. The one that's in a similar direction is two individuals who I didn't speak about very much at all today, um, who are not household names, uh, but were quite possibly the most important participants in the Constitutional Convention were James Wilson and Governor Morris. And again, I don't think these are names that mean very much to um, anybody. But nonetheless, they were arguably the most important figures at the Constitutional Convention. And I increasingly believe that they believed in a conception of the Constitution that was quite different than a lot of their peers, that imagined giving an extraordinary amount of power to the national government. And I want to... uh, conduct a study that would understand both their vision for the Constitution and the enormous uh, success they had incorporating that into the text of the Constitution, and then at the same time, why it disappears so quickly and why we know so little about them and their work. Um, A way to think about this uh, is its provisional title, The Original Lost Constitution of James Wilson and Governor Morris. the success they had initially, and then just as importantly, why we know nothing about it, why it disappears, and the sort of deeper lessons that holds um, connected to my first book very much uh, for how we ought to understand what goes into the creation of the Constitution. A second very different project um, is I'm, I'm interested in, in understanding how Americans thought about democracy uh, in the founding period and beyond. This is a subject um, that I I think is important and has obviously received a considerable amount of attention, but I I think something that is usually less uh, considered um, when we we think about how people thought about democracy in earlier times is particularly why the word democracy itself ever came to emerge as the dominant standard by which we judge political life. In other words, giving people more rights, giving more people a greater say of power, giving groups who had previously been excluded new kinds of rights and privileges doesn't automatically explain why a word that carried a very different meaning for thousands of years, a pretty technical term in political science, was ever grabbed hold of to positively describe all these things. I want to understand how a word that the founding generation never could have used like we do somehow became the word in the wake of the American Revolution that was 
that that captured everything that people wanted the new nation to become. Um, I think a succinct way of describing this is people have often assumed we know what democracy means and have just tried to figure out when Americans became more democratic. I want to understand why people ever came to think democracy means what we think it means today. Well, there you have it, people. Um, I'm sure we'll all be waiting for that. I know I will. Um, in, in any case, thank you, Dr. Gnab, for coming on the program and speaking about your book. Thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have you on later on to speak about those projects. I would love it. All righty. <laughs>